are King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God, I thank you that we are not in charge, but you are. Thank you that you demonstrate your might and your power among us, even in the difficult times. Lord, that when our eyes are blinded to your working, you are still at work. When we can't see it, you're still there. Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness. You're like all that you've created. Your character is seen all around us in that the day is, <clears throat> as the word says, utters its speech from day to day. All through the heavens speaks of your continuance, your faithfulness, your kindness, your steadfastness, all about your character and nature. You are more faithful than even your creation. Lord, we pray that you will minister to our hearts this morning. Holy Spirit, would you take control? Just help us to yield over to you. Say what you want to say. Speak to hearts. Do what you do best. And I surrender to you right now, this frail human vessel. Use it to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I want to speak this morning a little bit about dealing with transition because we are in transition. And, and uh, I think that there, it has a potential to get some of us a little down, a little discouraged, a little bit wondering about what's happening, who's in charge, what's going on. And... I just want to express one very specific set of things to you that I hope will cement something in your mind like it has for me. Over this transitional period, we have, dis, you know, I've disclosed a couple of times, and if you're visiting with us, this will be new to you, that <clears throat> some time back, the Lord had begun to deal with me about implementing a transition to in the leadership of the church here at Christian Center. Uh, I thought it would come much sooner than it did, but it's here, and we're in it. And I knew there would be a, a, a moment when I would be able to, in my mind, the, the way it looked was to take the key and put it in the switch and turn it. And when I did that, it would sort of it would start the clock ticking or the pages of the calendar turning on a process that God wanted to implement. And so for a while, I was if you can see it mentally with me, running around with that key in my hand saying, Lord, when and where will I need to put that in and flip the switch and begin this process? March 18th, 2007, I was in a meeting, and a number of us here were in the same meeting together. Uh, the meeting is not significant, but to me the date is. We were in that meeting, and as the uh, presenters were up on the platform doing what they were doing, it hit me right in that moment. I thought, this is the day. This is it. This is the day I reach in my pocket and I pull out that key and I put it in the switch and the Lord confirmed to my heart and I put it in there and I turned it. March 18th, 2007, which the clock started ticking, the calendar pages started turning and I kept it all pretty much to myself. Why upset everyone? Why unnerve everybody? I was nervous enough about it myself, not knowing how it was going to unfold or what it all meant. I just knew that there was a step of obedience I needed to take. And when I put the key in the switch and turned it, <clears throat> excuse me, I knew there was, in, generally speaking, there would be a five-year window that I would be working within. 
Specifically, I knew it would break into two pieces of a two-year and a three-year plan, and that at the three-year mark, it would become visible to anyone and everyone. Now, on March 1st of this year is when we disclosed that to the church. And I believe that God has been in control of this all along the way. Whether I felt like it, whether you knew it, whether we knew anything about it, I believe that he was leading and guiding us and that it was our task to be very, very obedient in following him. Part of that transition is what we're right in the middle of now. You know, Pastor Mike and Trish at Foursquare Church uh, here in Big Bears is a huge success in this process. And I smile as I say it because it just so is still amazing to me. But it leaves some people with this wonder of what, what should I do? How should I act? Where should I go? What should I be? Uh, how do I attend two churches? And what do I, right? I mean, you're hearing it. There's no secret. And uh, I have decided to step back and say, Lord, you handle that part because I can't. Okay? I, it makes me crazy to think about sheep going all over town trying to figure out where to live. But God's going to set all that out, and I'm, I'm staying back until about June the 1st. And any sheep that's in the neighborhood of me is going to get sheared. <laughs> okay, which means you're mine, all right? But look, I, want to, I just want you to see something that has been remarkable to me in this journey. I've just shared my heart, okay? To me, it's facts. But you may interpret it in any subjective manner you like. March 1st, we said that we disclosed that we were at that near point of a couple of years had gone by since I put the key in the switch. And we really didn't know how it was going to unfold, but we we're going to now include all the body of Christ in this announcement. And we were a little nervous doing that. But on March 1st, that set into place a series of events that led to Pastor Mike and Trish becoming the, the pastors at Big Bear Foursquare. Now, let me ask you a question. If you happen to know the date on which Pastor Mike became appointed as the pastor of Foursquare. Close. No, no. It was the 17th. Now, that's significant to me. March 17th. Do you... Can you see clearly on the counter that that is exactly two years to the day done when I stuck my key in the switch? March 18th, click, 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 on the 17th, at the midnight on the 17th, two years had passed to the day. Now, you might say... This is just so much facts and so much whatever. Listen, I rejoice in this. God is in control. I'm not in charge. You're not in charge. You know, I'm sure that when uh, the Lord spoke to Joshua, it said, here's how it's going to go. You're going to get everybody up, and in the morning, I need you to march around Jericho. And uh, do that once a day for seven days. On the seventh day, do it seven times, and then yell and blow horns, and amazing things are going to happen. Can you imagine like day five. And all you VeggieTale fans, you know what's going on. <laughs> you know, the Slurpees are falling or whatever is this happening in VeggieTales. And, uh, but it's significant that in the Word, it's, it states very clearly that Joshua told them, okay, we're going to march. Don't say a word. Have you ever read that part? He told them, don't say anything. Why? 
because they're pretty good at grumbling. <laughs> they're pretty good at complaining and murmuring. Murmuring. The Israelites were good at that. They practiced. March, 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 march. We don't really know what's going to happen, but we're being obedient. Amen? And we're in this together. We're following God. We've given us some directives, and we're following them. We should be joying in this, that he's in control. I just share that one set of dates with you that, to me, are amazing. Turn the switch. 365 days, 365 days to the day. Now, we know that he didn't begin being the pastor there until a few days later, and some of us didn't even realize that it had happened on that date. But for me, it's a marvelous thing to know that to that kind of specifics from God are in charge of what we're about. But you know that it's caused a little conflict in some minds, and uh, we need to see that this brings us to a certain point. Second Chronicles chapter 32. Because it is a spiritual progression that we're in. It's not just a natural progression. There's a spiritual activity that's going on that God is organizing his people. God is putting things in order. And he's allowed us to be a part of that. We're in it. We're walking with him. Now this is going to be a history lesson for the next few minutes. And I hope it doesn't bore you. Sennacherib. Anybody want to repeat that after me? Sennacherib. I don't know, it kind of sounds like a snack or something. <laughs> snack a rib. After these deeds of faithfulness, because there's a little history just ahead of that about Hezekiah keeping the Passover and being very faithful to the Lord. After these deeds of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered Judah. He encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them over to himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come, and that his purpose was to make war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his leaders and commanders to stop the water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. <clears throat> Thus many people gathered together who stopped all the springs and the brook that ran through the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? Does that make sense so far? Cut off the water supply for the enemy when he comes and sieges around your city. Don't help him. Verse 5, And he strengthened himself, built up all the wall that was broken, raised it to the towers, built another wall outside. Also, he, he uh, repaired the Milo in the city of David and uh, made weapons and shields in abundance. Then he set military captains over the people, gathered them together to him in the open square of the city gate, and gave them encouragement, saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid nor dismayed before the king of Assyria nor before all the multitude that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. You may not be aware of this, but in Deuteronomy chapter 20, there are instructions given uh, in the second reading of the law Rules for going to war. And it says, uh, you could flip over there if you'd like, but it says basically the same thing. It says anytime you're on the verge of going to war, call for the priest 
or some leader in this case, and have him come before the people and say this. Be strong and be courageous. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. They have the arm of flesh. We have the Lord our God. They have us outnumbered. Wasn't Israel outnumbered most of the time? They were always outnumbered. They were always uh, somebody stronger than them coming to fight. And this was their task, was to simply encourage one another, organize themselves as best they could. In this case, they made weapons, they built walls, they fortified themselves, they cut off the water for the enemy's sake, and they positioned themselves and got ready. But finally, the encouragement comes, trust in the Lord. We sang it this morning, in your word I'll trust. I'm going to place my hope in you. I don't have any other place to go. All the fortifications that I can make for my own life and all the or you know, bootstrapping I can do to pull myself up and, and get happy about life, I can only do so much. And then I need the Spirit of God to come and bring encouragement to my heart and my soul. When I can't see what's happening and I'm blind to the things that are occurring in the Spirit, I want to be like Elisha praying for his servant. Remember Elisha's servant? They were being surrounded, and uh, they were after Elisha. And the servant came and said, we're surrounded. They've got us pinned in. And Elisha says, Lord, open his eyes so that he can see what's going on here. And his eyes were opened, and he saw chariots of fire, flames of fire, all around them where the Lord had put angelic warfare on their behalf. You know what's amazing is they didn't even have to, in that, in that account in the Bible, the angels didn't come and do any warfare. Elisha simply prayed that the enemy's eyes would be blinded. And then he led them into the wrong place and had their eyes open. It's amazing. Spiritual activity happening. We prepare ourselves in the natural, but God is in charge of how things unfold in the spirit. Let's continue this. Verse 9, after this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, sent his servants to Jerusalem. But he and all the forces with him laid siege against Lachish. To Hezekiah, he sent them to king, the king of Judah and to all of Judah who were in Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, In what do you trust that you remain under siege in Jerusalem? What are you doing hiding in your city? Who do you trust? Doesn't Hezekiah persuade you to give yourselves over to die by famine and thirst, saying, The Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not the same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem, saying, You shall worship before one altar and burn incense on it? Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of the other lands? Were the gods, by the way, see the little g, were the gods of the nations of those lands in any way able to deliver their lands out of my hand? Sennacherib's talking pretty big here. Who was there among all the gods of those nations that my fathers utterly destroyed that could deliver his people from my hand, that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? Now, therefore, don't let Hezekiah deceive you or persuade you like this, and don't believe him. For no God of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? And furthermore, his servants, Sennacherib's servants, spoke against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. He also wrote letters to revile the Lord God of Israel and to speak against him, saying, As the gods of the nations of the other lands have not delivered the people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. 
Then they called out with a loud voice in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten them and trouble them that they might take the city. And they spoke against the God of Jerusalem as against the gods of the people of the earth, the work of men's hands. You know, when we're in trouble and the enemy comes to bring all kinds of accusations against the things we trust in, and he comes to unnerve us and, and make us to be unstable. To make us bring, you know, cause doubt on the things in which we trust and the understanding of God that we have learned. He uses all kinds of tactics to make us unsteady. And uh, I, I have this note here that I grabbed from another guy that made so much sense. It said, we may well fear when those who are stronger challenge us in our weakness. We may well fear, but we can have great confidence when our enemies challenge God. I think of David and Goliath right away. You know, it was one thing to have one army against another and one set of men opposed to another until somebody started accusing God. Your God's not able to deliver you. Oh, now we've got it on the right surface. Now the turf has been declared. It's not me versus him. It's him versus God. And David came out and said, you come at me with a spear and a shield. I come at you in the name of the Lord. So the tables have just turned. I may be little. You may be big. And I like the story that says, hey, he's so big. How can I miss him? Aren't you afraid because he's so big? How can I miss him? He's going to be easy to hit. Elisha, open the servant's eyes. He needs to see what's really going on here. They have not come to capture men. They've come to defile or defy God. And when that happens, God shows up to do battle for us. We do everything we can to be prepared. We do all that we know we should do to be ready. And they had done that here in Hezekiah in this situation. And look at verse 20. And this is where we're going. Now because of this, King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, prayed and cried out to heaven. Our task, when we are uncertain, when change comes and transition has an ability to begin to shift the earth under our feet or cause us to feel unstable or unstable in where things are going and we feel a little out of control, we're not sure what's coming next. What is our task? Pray and cry out to God. Cry out to heaven. Put everything you can in order and say, God, I've done all I can do in the natural. Now I'm going to step into the spiritual. Now I'm going to step into the moment and say, God, it has to be in front of you. This battle is not mine. It's yours. They have not come to fight against me. This uh, emotional stress that has come to my life has not come because of who I am. It's come because I'm in you. My life is hidden in you. I have decided to follow you. These attacks that the enemy is bringing against me, I feel them personally, but I understand this. It's not about me. It's about you. And it's about your kingdom coming and your will being done. And I am one of your representatives. The Bible says we are God's hand-picked ambassadors. We represent Christ in the world. And when we stand up and say, I'm going to follow Jesus, we have an enemy that's after us immediately. And I'm not here to glorify him. I'm here to say that when the enemy comes against us, the Bible assures us that the Lord will raise up uh, his spirit against him, right? 
The Lord will fight our battles for us. How many times did he tell his people, this battle isn't yours, it's mine. You go out and present yourselves in this place, and I'm going to do the fighting. Let's look this let's over just a little further. It says they, you know, this is amazing. You got a king and you got the prophet Isaiah. Now the prophet Isaiah is no wimp, right? He's no mealy mouthed prophet. This guy's declaring the Messiah who's coming six, seven, eight hundred years before, after him. He's feeling in his body and in his heart the movement of the Holy Spirit. He is operating under the anointing of God most of his life and declaring things that are going to happen hundreds of years later. He knows what it feels like to have the power of God rushing through his person and to say things that even as he's saying them, he is understanding it's not for his day, but he is speaking announcements from heaven under the anointing of God's spirit. This is a man of God. And he and, he and Hezekiah have put as much as they can in order. And what do they say? Hey, partner, let's pray. Let's cry out to God. Then the Lord sent an angel who cut down every mighty man of valor, every leader and captain in the camp of the king of Assyria. I like this stuff. Angel of the Lord coming and cutting down all the enemy's leaders. So much so, it says, so he returned, that's Sennacherib, so Sennacherib returned shamefaced to his own land. Went crying home with his tail between his legs. Not only that, but because he defied God, the God of heaven. Listen to the next sentence, a little rough. And when he had gone into the temple of his God, little g, his false idol gods, those in whom he trusted, those he thought were greater than the God of heaven, when he went into the temple of his God, some of his own offspring struck him down with the sword. Killed by his own family in his little temple of worship of false gods. I like the part what God does. Sends angels. We shouldn't put this away just yet. Look at Psalm 34. Hey, there's a stir right now. Angels and demons, huh? I'm in. The emails are flying again. Here we go. Da Vinci Code all over again. Angels, demons, and foolish old Tom Hanks. Dan Brown and the mess that's going on. You know, there's reviews and more reviews and there's just all kinds of news and I just want to ask you, do you think angels and demons are real? <laughs> yeah, you bet you they are. You know, the, the, the survey says across the nation that only about 35% of people, Christians, believe that angels and demons are real. Only 35 out of every 100 Christians across the nation believe that demons are real. Most say it's just a, you know, a metaphor or a figment or, you know. Listen, I don't know, get those folks to come hang around with you for a while. You could prove it to them. Amen? Because the battle is hot all the time. We win, we win. Hallelujah, we win. I read the back of the book and we win. <laughs> I will bless the Lord at all times. Psalm 34, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Let me insert something for you. If you're in a place of discouragement or unsurety, 
If you are uncertain about your tomorrow, one of the things you need most of all is a companion. You need a friend. If you're trying to walk this thing out on your own, you are in trouble. Capital T. All right? You can't do it by yourself. We were talking with a couple last night. I said, you know, the Bible is very clear. Way in the beginning it said about men, it said it's not good that man should be alone. And so he created Eve, a help me. Now this isn't a marriage seminar. That's not why I bring it up. I'm just saying that there's a principle there that says it's not good for us to be alone. We're not built to be alone. We're built to be next to someone. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 says, you know, that, that uh, you've got to have a good friend. And that, uh, you know, that if one falls into the ditch, the other one will help him out. Right? You need somebody to walk with you. And when this says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together, I can see Hezekiah and Isaiah standing next to each other saying, it's good to have a friend in this thing. It's good to have another spiritual leader alongside of me. And uh, what's our agreement? We put everything we can in order to fight this fight. We cut off the water supplies. We got our people arranged in groups. I see cell groups here, by the way, captains and leaders of groups. And they're organizing and they're all set. They got the walls built. But said, now what do you want to do? Let's pray. Let's pray and let's cry out to heaven because this battle is not ours. If God doesn't show up, we're in trouble. Let's exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him. And delivers them. Hello. Do you fear the Lord today? Let me try again. Do you fear the Lord today? Yes. Yeah, you do. You say, well, are you not, I'm not asking, are you afraid of God? Right? That's always this questionable moment of defining the fear of the Lord. Do you have this awesome reverence for him? Do you acknowledge that he's God of all and he is high and lifted up and that every other knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that he's the Lord of glory. Amen? Amen. He's the Lord and we fear him. We reverence him. We follow him. That tells me that no matter what the movie states, and I probably won't go to see that angels, demons thing. I don't know what they depict. Their theology is going to be all messed up, I'm sure. But I know this, that as I stand here and as you sit there, the angel of the Lord encamps you. When I pray for people and they're moving, they're doing things, they're going, they're traveling, whatever it is, they say, would you pray for me? And this is my prayer right here. Lord, encamp them. Surround them with the angel of the Lord. Make them like Elisha. Make them like Hezekiah and Isaiah and the people of Israel in that moment. Send the angel of the Lord ahead of them and behind them and all around them. Let him be the foreguard, the rear guard. Talk about having bumpers on your car. Amen? Front and rear. They go to the speed limit. If you go over the speed limit, the angels get off. <laughs> Till then, they're sitting on every fender, protecting you. Have you ever heard that before? Somebody told me that once. They said, the angels will ride on your car and protect you until you go one mile over the speed limit, and they all get off. Well, that's a good picture for me to remember. You get a little nervous on the freeway, I think, mm, slow down. Okay, everybody back on. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. 
Angels are real. Hebrews chapter 13. You're not in this by yourself. The Lord is with you. Oftentimes, by the way, the angel of the Lord in appearance in the Old Testament was Christ himself. It's called a Christophany. It was the appearance and the manifestation of the Son of God in that moment. Hebrews 13, 1, let brotherly love continue. Verse 2, don't forget to entertain strangers, for by doing, by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. I'm sure if we went through this group right here this morning, there'd be enough of us that would say, somewhere in my life, there was that moment when I just was not sure if that was a real person or not. Uh-huh. And you say, is that kind of weird and wispy and out there on the fringe? Sure it is. But the Bible says it's true. Abraham was in his tent, right? And here come these visitors, the Bible says. And, and he says, uh, excuse me, where are you guys going? We're on our way down to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not a vacation plan we're in, but we're going down there. Well, how about staying for lunch? He calls his wife. She makes lunch. They get everything ready. They have lunch together. And then they go on their way. And the three of them stand up to leave, and Abraham stands up with them, right? And the and the one sends the other two ahead. Says, you guys go on ahead. I'm going to stay and talk with Abraham. And God himself is standing and talking to Abraham. They just had lunch. This is a real touchable, feelable manifestation. This is God. He says, am I going to hide? We've talked about this the last couple of weeks. Am I going to hide what I'm about to do in Sodom and Gomorrah from Abraham? He's my friend. Do you see God in this moment as your friend? Do you understand that the angel of the Lord is a camp around about you when you are fearing the Lord? When you're walking with him, the battle is not yours. Anytime we feel unnerved and uncertain, our job is to pray and to cry out. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and delivered him from all his fears. The angel of the Lord encamps the righteous. I don't know, I just feel like standing up a little taller when I walk now. When I understand this, I'm just walking down the street and say, wait a minute, <clears throat> there's angels all around me. <laughs> this is good. Can we forfeit that protection? Can we forfeit that moment? I mean, will they really get off the fenders of my car? Yeah, we can sin. We can deny God. We can become those that worship idols. We can put our trust in things that are not trustworthy. We can lean on, the, like the proverb says, a, a crutch that's got a break in it and it'll splinter out when we put our way out. There are lots of things we can trust in. But when we run back to trusting in the Lord and when we find ourselves like Hezekiah and Isaiah against the odds, and that's just one passage of many in the scriptures that tell us when we're against the odds, our task is to simply pray and cry out. Remember Jehoshaphat? Five to one, the odds. Five kings against one. And they, they decide, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. They fast and they pray. They say, God, you're in charge. What do you want to do? He says, you don't have to fight this battle. This is my battle. Just go out tomorrow, present yourselves, and see what happens. And so they get a little group together and say, well, how should we respond to this prophecy that we've heard from God? He's told us it's not our fight. What's their answer? They put the worshipers out front. They put the singers and the worshipers out front. 
and the musicians next in line, and all the soldiers after that. And they go marching out in the morning, singing, The Lord is good, and his mercies endure forever. And there's got to be angels in that picture that we're not told about because there's so many other times that we know. And I'm not, my dependence is not upon angels. That's not my message this morning to you either. We don't lean on them. We just need to understand it's real. They're there. And God is in control and he's protecting and he is guiding. Our task is to sing and to worship and to pray and to cry out and to put our dependency in the right place. I'm done depending on my checkbook. Amen? Amen. Come on. I'm done depending on somebody else for uh, supply. We need miraculous supply. We're coming into the days we may need a few ravens to drop by our house, just like he did the brook of Cherith with the prophet. That'd be okay with me? I can take it supernaturally. How about you? Are we volunteering to be available for God's supernatural provision in this hour and in this day when the nation is in trouble? and looking for help from everywhere but from him. We're going to fix it. We're going to make it better. We're going to promise everything. We're going to give away the, the you know, everything. It's all going to be there. Everybody's going to have something. Phooey. I'm not the president. I'm not the house. I'm not the Congress. I don't make those decisions, but I can tell you this. My trust is not in them. I want to pray for them. There's a lot of good people there that are praying too. And they're, they're leading and they're doing the best they can with what they've got. But listen, if our dependency is on them, we are in big trouble. They need a lot of prayer. Amen. And we, we need to be praying for them. We've got a lot of brothers and sisters that are leading the country. We need to pray that God will raise them up. Because if they get into leadership and they get the, the forefront, they take the point, God can supply wisdom and knowledge and grace from heaven that will cause them to have the answers in the time of need. Right? I mean, they'll, they'll say, listen, this whole plan we've got here, this resolution, whatever it is, we need to throw it out. This is what we need to do. That's from heaven. And if we'll do that and, and respond to God in our leadership, then we'll have some answers. Other than that, we all better be crying out to God. I don't even know where I'm at in these notes. And I don't even think they apply. Most of these... Pressure. When you're in transition, there's a certain amount of pressure to do something. Make something happen. I've read a couple of instructional items that have been very helpful to me. Of course, the Bible's one of them. But when you're in transition, when you're going through change as we are as a congregation. What happens in us is this. We, we go through three stages. One is that we come to an end of what we used to do and know, and there's a longing to go back there. I, I think of the Bible and the children of Israel as they've left Egypt. It's what they've known for 400 years. And off they go into this wandering and out to Sinai and the mountain, and, and they're out here and they don't really know What's next? And when things start going tough, they start looking backwards, don't they? And they go, oh, if we could just go back to Egypt. There we had garlic and leeks and all kinds of, you know. They, they, for some reason in that moment, they didn't remember the part about bricks without straw. They just remembered the good points. 
And, and we have a similar bent. We're people. That when things get tough, we tend to look back and forget the traumatic stuff. We pack the trauma. We don't remember it. We pack it somewhere. And we look back and we only look at the good things that have happened. And we think it's better back there. It's always better back there or over there, right? The grass is greener. The other side of the fence. Yeah, it's just not been mowed. It's taller than you think it is. It's weeds. But we have, when, we, when we start through transition, there comes a point where there's a line drawn and it's not going to be the way it used to be anymore. And there's a longing that looks back. But God's saying, come forward. Move forward. We're going somewhere else. Then there's this second period, the second phase, is there's a period when it looks like nothing is happening. What that's provided for is for us to adjust to what we've left. Our emotional connections, the way we've always done it is back there. And now we have nothing to do and we don't know how to do it. So we're just supposed to relax and press into God right there. Say, God, what's the new? How do I need to adjust? Where's my emotional stability really been? What have I been trusting and leaning on right? You know, in, in all this in the past? Is there something I've been doing that needs to change for where we're going? So it's kind of like a death and this pause where nothing's happening. And then we come to a new birth of the new thing God wants to do. May I spiritualize it? Jesus was crucified. There was a period of three days in the grave where we didn't know what was going to happen. But things were being prepared for the new resurrection that came. Something has to end in order for something to begin. It's a process. There are even uh, worldly, secular, psycho psychological books out there that they study in school that will teach you these same three phases. We're in the middle. How about this parallel? Jesus grew up as a young man, was submitted to his parents, right? Until he was how old? 30. At 30, it was time for him to move into his own. It was time for him to transition from being a son in the house, the son of his father, to becoming the son of God. What happened in the middle part? 40 days in the wilderness. That 40 days in the wilderness moved Jesus from being a son known as the brother of these other guys, the son of his parents, the carpenter in the shop, the boy around town. Everybody had plans for him. They all saw him growing up. Probably figured he's going to become his, uh, take over his dad's business or whatever. But there was a moment when he had to break with that and move into a, a highly um, pressure-filled time with his father in the desert in order to come out the other side victorious and become the son of the Most High God in public. Forty days. I think of Moses... Uh, and the others that died as, as they were getting ready to go into the promised land and those that died. And when they died, Miriam and Moses and his brothers, uh, Aaron and those, that the children of Israel would park for 30 days and mourn the loss. In transition, we go through this period, 30 days, 40 days, a couple of weeks, whatever it is. Some of you have lost jobs, okay? And you're in the middle place now. You're between your identity and what you used to do. Your, your identity, your emotional connections, all of you were connected to what you used to do. And somebody said, you don't get to do that anymore. 
And so what they did is they immediately, the day after, stripped you of who you were. And you're in the middle place saying, well, now who am I? Because I find my, my wealth of my being, my, my um, what am I looking for here, my stature, my, uh, my self-esteem, all those things were connected to what I did. And God's saying, let's find out who you are, not what you do. Let's find out who you are. Let's get you in the 40 days in the wilderness. Let's get you in the 40 days in the temptation. Let's get you in the 30 days of mourning the loss. Let me stir up inside of you and help bring to the surface who you really are. You're my child. You're my son. You're my daughter. I'm the one that I, I, I encamp you. I'm walking you through this process. Let go of your identity as you used to know it and find out who you are in me. And when you get a hold of that, we're going to come out the other side with a new birth and a new life and a new direction. You might even have a new job. But you'll understand taking on that new job that that job is not your identity. Because you'll take who I am in Christ into that place. You say, hey, listen, I don't come here 9 to 5 or 8 to 5 or whatever it is because I need this work. God has placed me here because of who I am in him. And I bring that with me to work and freak people out with it. <laughs> they go, you're different around here. You actually like coming to work. Nobody around here likes coming to work, but you do. What's the deal? Well, I don't come here to work. I come here as an ambassador. I come here to exchange a little of my time in serving Jesus for a little, what little money you give me. And I use that to buy some groceries from time to time. But I understand my mission is not about what I do. It's about who I am. In Christ. My job? Cry out. In the, in the wilderness place, in the, in the mid place, after I've done all I know to do, I need to get a friend. Have you, have you read that in Ecclesiastes chapter 4? We should read that. But again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him and a threefold cord is not quickly broken my bible has a little heading that says the value of a friend have you got somebody to walk through this journey with you is there somebody that you will bring alongside of you and say come on with me would you please this is tough for me this is a hard place I don't understand it. I think I've come to the end of something and I'm in between that and whatever's coming, but it's very awkward. And in this middle place, I don't even know who I am yet. Would you go with me? Could you cry out to God with me? When we get together this week in cells, could we cry out together to God? Could we lift our voices up and say, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to launch my hope in Him. I'm going to let this song I sang this morning be reality for me. In your word, I place my trust. In you, I'm going to place my hope. And with my Hezekiah and Isaiah relationship, I'm going to cry out to God and ask him to put the angel of the Lord around me and be my supply, be my Jehovah Jireh, be my Jehovah Shalom, be my Jehovah Rapha, be my Jehovah Rophe, be, be all things Jehovah Nisi, be my banner, be my healer, be my peace, be my provider, be all those things to me. Let the angel of the Lord come and bring answers from heaven because my trust cannot be in myself even in what I used to be, has to be in Him. I like this transition stuff. You know, it's a little unnerving 
And it can bring discouragement and despair at times. But I'm believing that if we'll just hang on to the hem of his garments, he's going to bring us through this with wondrous results. And we can become all he wants us to become in him. Amen. Amen. Become who we are in him. Do what he wants us to do out of who we are in him. Can I close and sing a little song with you? It's still my theme song. Uh, Arlo and I revived it. You've heard it before, but if you know it, just jump in. I'm a new creation. I'm a brand new man. Old things are passed away. I've been born again. More than a conqueror, that's who I am. I'm a new creation. I'm a brand new man. I'm a new creation. I'm a brand new man. Old things are passed away. I've been born again. More than a conqueror, that's who I am. I'm a new creation. I'm a brand new man. And God's going to bring the church through that same process. We're going through a process of rebirth. I don't think he's going to completely change our identity. I'm not afraid of that. But I believe in this new birth, there's going to come greater power, greater revelation, greater demonstration of his presence. I want to start seeing miracles, signs, and wonders in your cell groups. I want to see people getting healed and delivered and ministered to. I want to see you operating in your gifts and callings right inside those cell groups. And then when we get together to celebrate, We'll be talking about what God's been doing in the cells and penetrating our community and bringing life to our neighborhoods. Amen. Could we end this right there?